Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you're going to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. I'm joined today by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton. This week, we'll discuss the struggle, question mark, to define wokeness and the questionable calls for financial regulation in the wake of the Silicon Valley bank kerfuffle. But first, let's go to Paris. If you're feeling in the protesting spirit, that is uh, something that is going on in Paris right now. The impetus for this is the moves by uh, French President Emmanuel Macron uh, to raise the retirement age in France, which is currently at 62 to 64 years old. Uh, This has been met with resistance, uh, which this has been not the first time that uh, leadership in France has tried to raise that retirement age. And this being brought on, of course, by the financial problems that are created for any nation like this who is running some kind of an old age pension system. uh, It just turns out countries don't seem to be able to do this very well and keep a sense of financial solvency. The reaction has been people uh, in the streets here from the Wall Street Journal. Protest movements have long been the final arbiter, albeit an unofficial one, of France's political system, bringing successive governments to their knees and forcing previous presidents to abandon or even rescind legislation uh, protesters oppose. That is why thousands of protesters have streamed into public squares across France since Mr. Macron exercised Article 49 of the Constitution to raise France's retirement age from 64 to, uh, to 64 from 62 by 2030 without the consent of parliament. So this is what is going on. What do you make of it? Uh, Well, as you mentioned, this is something that uh, has been attempted in the past. It's something that France definitely needs to do. Um, 64 might not even be high enough. Uh, My understanding is I believe 65 is the most common retirement age in Europe. Um, So even should this be successful and he did push it through is my understanding but you know we'll see if, if it is by rescinded, 2030 yes. if, yeah. if it actually happens um even so they would still be you know have a younger retirement age than most other countries in Europe um and you know you if you have a nation like all developed nations frankly um with generous benefits, including retirement benefits and declining birth rates um, and a a shrinking labor force, you know, um, not just the United States, but, you know, other places, things like disability and other, you know, programs which have a very important role to play. I don't think that they are entirely indefensible, but the way in which they get used often is just to to take people off and to keep them from the labor market. And when you don't have people producing and not just producing, but then producing tax revenue for the government, uh, all these benefits eventually have to be paid for. And yes, you know, you can pay through debt and you can, there's all sorts of ways in which 
um, governments have managed to kind of delay the inevitable or stretch what the resources they have to work with. But you cannot do that forever. Um, you know, an example would be Greece, uh, where basically everybody wanted benefits. Nobody wanted to pay the taxes required for the benefits. Uh, and then they wanted to join the European Union. And so they just lied about their financials to join the European Union. And it brought the whole European Union into a, a financial crisis. And um, you just you can't do it forever. Um, and so this move by Macron is, is extremely unpopular. Um, it has uh, resulted in protests. Um, but it's something that I think more than a few French bureaucrats, politicians know absolutely needs to be done, whether or not they want to be the ones to vote on it. I'm glad you brought up uh, what happened in Greece, uh, because actually I remember that pretty vividly. And I, apologies if I've told this story before, but a, a friend of mine in Chicago had a pizza restaurant. I remember being there for lunch one day and I'm standing in line with him waiting to order our slice of pizza. And this is when those protests in Athens are uh, going on. We're standing in line and there's this woman in front of us and she's looking up at the television, which is CNN on and is covering the protests in Athens. And after a moment or so, she turns around and says to us, boy, you don't see that every day. And my friend Todd just looks at her and goes, do you know much about the history of Greece? <laughs> This is like Thursday to them. Um, <laughs> and, and very similar to what is happening here in France is this whole, we'll put this in the, the show notes, this Wall Street Journal piece is illustrating that this is just a long tradition of this, of protest, uh, often violent protest, uh, being a, in a certainly a characteristic part of French democracy uh, and the resistance to these kinds of moves. Uh, certainly there's precedent has happened before. Yeah. <clears throat> on, on the sort of constitutional context of this, the, the French Republic is very different from most uh, democratic governments in the West. It is a highly presidential system. And in fact, uh, the, the constitution stipulates that the government determines and conducts the policy of the nation. And this is specifically pertaining to the presidency. Um, what we have in this not going to a parliamentary vote is an exercise in the clause uh, 49.3, which allows any bill introduced in the legislative assembly to be passed by the government without formal vote. Now, there is a sort of democratic recourse here, which uh, is also allowed uh, the parliamentarians, if their objections are strong enough to this, can then ho uh, hold a no confidence vote in the government um, as a result. So while there's been a lot of public outcry, it will be interesting to see what this also what this constitutional provision also does is it sort of insulates the parliament from this. You know, I could imagine a world in which many of these legislatures that know the deep sort of fiscal problems of France will not want to attach their names to a vote on such a thing and might, in fact, want to publicly oppose it while at the same time saying, well, I don't think that this uh, merits uh, dissolving the government at the same time. So I'm thinking that this is probably Macron's strategy. And this is something that, while it's used rarely, is used regularly uh, in the French Republic and has been since, since uh, 1958 uh, with the latest constitution. So it's not uh, – you'll see the, the foreign press is often alarmed at the seemingly anti-democratic nature of this. But this is not 
while this issue is a very large issue, um, and there's a lot of public discontent on this, this method of proceeding is not one that's alien to, to the history of the French Republic. This is uh, similar to the problems that are being created, as I see it, in the over-presidentialization of the American system of government, uh, where Congress has power and has decided to uh, give that power away at any chance they get, and usually to the executive branch. And the incentive it creates is similar to what you were just describing, Dan, which is you will have uh, members of Congress who previously, if you had the opportunity to be on the 80% side of an 80-20 issue, you wanted to clearly be seen as on the 80% side of an 80-20 issue. But the way that they'll look at it now is... I don't even have to take the 20% hit because I don't do it. It just gets passed on. It's done by the executive. And what I can tell my constituents is for the 80% of people who support it, it happened. Be happy. And for the 20% of people who oppose it, I didn't do anything. That was, that was the president. It was the executive branch that did it. It is a way of avoiding accountability for people who are supposed to be accountable to the voters who elected them. Uh, so it is – it is certainly a problem that we see not just in France, but I think we're increasingly seeing here in the United States. But underlying all of this, right, is what we've all kind of been talking about or at least hinting around, which is uh, the intractable problem that countries like France and the United States have, which is that math is not an opinion. And there's a lot of people who would like it to be an opinion, uh, particularly people who are seeking elected office. And uh, one of my disappointments in the tone of the political conversation over the last decade or so is the transition. Like, you know, look, it, it is good when countries have one political party, at least one political party that tries to be the grown up in the room, even if they have to say and propose unpopular things, unpopular but necessary things. And at one point in the United States context, the Republican Party was doing that with regard to problems like entitlements. We've gone very far away from that to the point where Donald Trump was reading the room of the new uh, constituencies of the Republican Party and basically said, we're not touching Medicare and Social Security. We're not touching it at all. The problem is, is that's not sustainable. The systems as they are constructed are not sustainable. Even Social Security, which I believe 65 is the official retirement age for Social Security. Um, back when it, 65 was picked as the retirement age, the average life expectancy was 62. So you had to live three years beyond the average life expectancy to even begin collecting Social Security. Meanwhile, now people live quite regularly into their 70s, 80s, 90s, and they are pulling more from a system than was initially planned for. And the intractability of people on these questions, the unwillingness to make changes to these systems uh, for you know, one, for people who often present themselves as being progressive and in favor of change, they are very much attached to a system that was designed in the 1930s and don't want to change a single bit about that. And if it's not going to change the underlying math of this, which is there's a crisis that is coming and it is better to deal with it before you get to the crisis 
But eventually the crisis will come and you will need to do something about it. And we're not there yet, uh, but I can only expect, I have no reason to expect otherwise, that the reaction uh, in the United States may not be exactly like what we're seeing in France, but there certainly would be a lot of upheaval about the kinds of changes that would have to be made to make a program like Social Security in the United States solvent and sustainable over time. Yeah, I mean, the the uncomfortable facts about programs like this is the only way in which they work is when the young and the dead pay for the old and the living. And if you end up with too many old and living and not enough dead and not enough young, or at least not enough young and working, you can't pay for them anymore. Um, I don't want more people to die, but you know the the option is okay. How do we make this more realistic? Raising the retirement age is a way to do that. If people are living healthier, which they are, um, people into their sixties, you know, maybe it's just the perception of you know when you're a kid, everyone older than you looks very old. But I remember like people in their sixties seeming very old. Um, and now my mother is, I think. Uh, she's turning 70 this year, and I can't believe it. You know, I, it doesn't look 70 from what I remember 70 being. She's, you know, in pretty good health. Not every 70-year-old or almost 70-year-old uh, is in that boat. But there, there is uh, a greater, not simply lifespan, but quality of life that we have achieved that we can be grateful for. But we also have to be realistic about, you know. Um, if people can work, they probably should. And frankly, they will probably be happier if they can. Um, doesn't mean we should extend people's careers indefinitely and they never get to retire or anything like that. But um, Social Security is not meant to be, you know, retire in Malibu sort of thing. And it isn't, uh, as anyone who's on it knows. Um, it's just kind of, a, okay, you've come to the point where you probably shouldn't be working anymore as a society, we're going to take care of you. That's that's a noble thing. We can argue about, you know, whether the state is doing a good job or should be the first one to do it or whatever. But, um, you know, I don't think we have to, to be too negative about that, but we do have to be realistic about it. And that's not happening in France. Um, the other thing uh, that Dan brought up is the criticism or the appearance that what's going on is anti-democratic. And, you know, if you look at the survey data and you look at what's happening, that's the president pushing this through, uh, Macron. Um, yeah, it seems to be this is going against the wishes of the people. Um, but only if you have a very flat, uh, direct democracy understanding of democracy is that the case. The people have representatives in parliament. Yes, you know, Macron is the one doing this, but those people can recall the government. They can recall Macron and force, uh, you know, a, a new a new vote. Um, they don't want to do it, but there's there's mechanisms. Not I don't totally want to dis- defend the French constitutional order here, but they have mechanisms democratically to deal with this if this is not working. And frankly, protest is one of them. You know, a hopefully peaceful uh, association is a way in which people participate in democracy. It's not just voting. Um, so maybe the result of this is not that they stop the voting age from being lifted, um, but Hopefully, it's going to be done in a sensitive way, in a way that, uh, you know, addresses the concerns of people. They have concerns. I'm, again, I'm not quite super sympathetic to them, so I don't really know where they're coming from. But there's got to be some way to to speak to people about the hard things that need to be done without minimizing their very real concerns. 
I think there is an implication in the way that people invoke the idea that this is anti-democratic and that's one of the reasons that it is bad. Um, I think we could compare this in a sense to the action that uh, President Joe Biden took to relieve uh, student loan debt, which the problem with it is it's illegal. What he did is illegal. Now, there are some uh, legal problems in the challenging of that because the question – you have to find somebody who actually has standing to be able to bring a suit. But there are cases before the courts and particularly the Supreme Court that will address and figure that out. That would be the objection, the primary objection, even setting aside the policy question, which we've discussed on this program before, of whether it's a good idea or not to relieve that kind of student loan debt or transfer the debt from the people who took out the loans to the taxpayers. Uh, the primary problem is that it is illegal. That's not the case here. Um, this is the president of France who is democratically elected himself using an article of the French constitution to be able to do something that, yes, is unpopular. Uh, it could be disliked. It can be unpopular. But it is not as if he is doing something that is out entirely outside of his purview and the roles and responsibilities of the president of France. Um, I think we, we would do well to separate these objections that, again, just because something is in this case anti-democratic in the sense that it is not the legislature that is doing it. It is not an even entirely anti-democratic in that this is a president who is popularly elected who is doing these things and will face the voters again at some point unless, of course, he decides not to run, in which case it will become an issue that will be addressed by the other candidates who are going to run and somebody gaining the popular will behind them to address either the undoing of what Macron has done or the continuation of what Macron has done, well, that'll happen. The supreme irony here is that is that 49-3 was a compromise measure, that General de Gaulle had in fact wanted broad authority <clears throat> to submit things to popular referendum as a way of running around uh, uh, the French parliament or the French assembly. And uh, this was the compromise measure, um, was a way to, in fact, give parliament an ex or give the uh, assembly an explicit means of recourse against this sort of thing while still maintaining a, 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 a highly centralized presidential system. So, yeah, it's it's very interesting. There's also the interesting fact, as I was reading up on this, while these protests have been large and have been in multiple sort of, you know, cities uh, throughout France, the estimate differences in crowd size between what the French police are reporting and what the trade unions, many of which are organizing these, these protests, are reporting is staggering. In Paris, for instance, the police reported 80,000 people in the streets, which is no small number of people, but the unions were reporting 400,000. And you see similar disparities um, along along the line there in other French cities. So just how large and how intense the opposition is, while it's universally recognized to be unpopular and this is what shows up in the opinion polling, the, uh, how animated 
the very strident opposition to it is, is, is something that we really won't know until, uh, until this works itself out. Let's move on to our second topic, which really came on my radar and anybody who uh, sadly wastes too much time on Twitter uh, is probably already aware of. So from an appearance on the program Rising, which is the Hills uh, YouTube morning show, uh, Bethany Mandel, who has a new book out, uh, the title of the book being Stolen Youth, How Radicals Are Erasing Innocence and Indoctrinating a Generation appeared on the program to talk about the book and was asked by uh, Brianna Joy Gray, who's former spokesman for Bernie Sanders, to define woke after she used uh, – was indicting uh, people who are woke with being really the aggressors in the book that she wrote. And uh, Bethany had an incident – look, I've done a lot of television and radio in my career. <clears throat> I have had – and even anybody just in – their general life has probably just had an incident like this happen to them where your brain just goes blank. You get asked a question and you just do not know the answer. And I am super sympathetic uh, to the position that she found herself in, which is you just – it's just gone. Uh, you, you, you struggle for a minute. She eventually uh, on Twitter later offers a, uh, an actual definition, which I will read here. Quote, a radical belief system suggesting that our institutions are built around discrimination and claiming that all disparity is a result of that discrimination. It seeks a radical redefinition of society in which equality of group uh, result is the endpoint enforced by an angry mob. So it turns into this whole quest for <clears throat> can we define this term? And I, I found this fascinating. I'll see if anybody else here does that. This is essentially a rhetorical game that is being played, this question to define wokeness. And if we can't come up with a definition of it, then it must not actually exist, uh, which is just not reality. But I find it interesting because, again, I'm, I'll be upfront about the fact that I don't like this term. I've never liked this term. I don't like the way that it has become uh, a catchphrase of source, sorts on the political right, that pretty much everything we don't like is wokeness. Every single threat that uh, the right sees is wokeness. Uh, but I see a through line between uh, what is now called wokeness, what was previously called political correctness, and what prior to that was also was called social justice – of it being essentially variations on the same theme and the terminology when one term becomes too toxic to be uh, to be continued on with, it's discarded and a new term is picked up. But essentially we're talking about the same thing. But part and parcel of that ideology, which I think does exist, is this idea that if we can change the way that we talk about the underlying thing – we will change the underlying thing itself. And it becomes so important about the use of words and rhetoric. And then to essentially the same way to turn around and say, well, if you can't define this thing, it doesn't actually exist. In a way, it's kind of keeping with uh, the philosophy that everything is about language. Everything is about how we define it and how we talk about it. And I uh, we're going to put in the show notes too. this guy, Freddie DeBoer, who I was not very familiar with, um, who's a, a left-wing guy had a really good piece uh, defining not just like a top-line definition of wokeness, but giving like 12 category examples of it, which he then followed up with another piece that I think I even the headline I'm just far more sympathetic to, which is 
what is the term that you want me to use for the sweeping political and social changes you desire? Tell me. Tell me whatever it is, and I will use that term. If you don't like wokeness, fine. We will pick whatever term it is. But the idea is we are talking about a thing that exists, even if people like me are frustrated by the word that is used. And I just don't see how this rhetorical game is in any way beneficial to an actual conversation. I mean, the, well, the one way to think about this is that I actually think the question is very fair. Because I think when you have people talking about woke, there are myriad of definitions going by. I mean, this is an old term. You go back, you know, this is something that starts showing up in African-American vernacular English in the 20s and the 30s. Um, The fact that it has become the byword for, you know, the civilizational struggle we face in, you know, 2023 is a product of its political weaponization, uh, both uh, by its proponents and by those uh, uh, hostile to it. So I think I think when you ask for these clear and simple definitions, I think that's helpful because then you can have a debate. Okay, you offer your definition. You know, let's say I disagree with it. You can have a conversation. That's a place where you can begin. Um, so I don't think it's a it's a gotcha question in I agree. And of itself. Um, I think I think it can be used that way. Um, you certainly have folks who try to um, you know in any sort of rhetorical combat try to demonstrate the other side's ignorance that sort of thing. But I think it's I think it's very important to th- think through these terms, particularly when you have, you know, you had a whole debate in the 90s over what's called political correctness. Is what we are facing today substantially different from that? Uh, There's an old kids in the hall sketch about an art class in which, you know, and this is 1990s uh, Canadian sketch comedy group displaying the sort of struggle sessions that, you know, um, you know, get the views on Twitter these days as something as something that's now, you know, 30 years old. So is this a, a new phenomena? And does this new language help us think through that phenomena? And I don't think this new language helps us think through it. I just I just don't see it being helpful. I think it is a rhetorical game. I think that's entirely why. I think the whole idea of not not that that's all it is, but that's for a large part of people what it is. It's virtue signaling. It's about just saying all the things that are expected to be said uh, or doing the things that are expected to be done, but not actually caring about any of the causes necessarily that these things are supposed to stand for. So we talked a few, maybe a month or two ago, about the, the hockey player who wouldn't play wear the rainbow jersey. Mm-hmm. right? So all the people who showed up on Pride Day could feel good about themselves instead of like volunteering for some you know mission that that helps gay and trans people right you know it was about them justifying their consumption and that's what it came down to um so there's that side of it and then you get people kind of bullying people on social media um and that's something that's not 
not unique to the left, frankly. Um, there is, you know, a few years ago, back when political correctness is more the term, uh, Alex Narasta at the Cato Institute uh, wrote a great article about how the right has its own version of it. He called it uh, patriotic correctness. And, you know, he went through all these shibboleths that you have. And so it's, it's a very human thing. Um, I think it's generally a bad thing. Um, usually it, it requires conflating virtue and propriety. Um, propriety is a very important thing. It is an aspect of morality, but virtue is supposed to be excellence. It's something that goes beyond these normal expected behaviors of just being civil with one another. And when you conflate the two, you actually fail at being civil all the time. You fail at being understanding. Um, And the right's reaction to that when it comes to wokeness is, you know, to see the left conflating those two and saying, therefore, propriety doesn't matter at all um, and going way too far in the other direction, in my opinion. Um, now, that said, uh, wokeness is not limited to the rhetorical side. I think I think that's what it is for a lot of people. But there are things like ESG requirements um, or efforts, I should say. They're not, not necessarily requirements in every case, but efforts in the corporate world. Um, part of that is environmental um and social governments, governance, I, I might be getting the acronym a little wrong there, but, uh, you know, related to certain UN goals, that sort of thing. Um, some of that's required, but some of that is, uh, to, to borrow a phrase from education, a, a preemptive capitulation, that people are just worried about regulators coming for them or other sorts of penalties. And so they, they change their policies, they divert resources to try to make sure they are giving the appearance of being good and socially conscious, at the end of the day, they need to make a profit. Um, And that should not be stigmatized. The business will not succeed. Businesses fail when they don't, when their revenues do not exceed their expenses. That's what profit is. Um, And when it gets diverted to these other goals, it becomes harder. That means it becomes harder for them to provide the products that people want and sometimes need. It becomes harder for them to provide the jobs that people want and need. Um, And, it gets in the way of things. Similarly, on college campuses all across the country, and also to some degree, probably in businesses, we have the you know the the diversity, equity, and inclusion um, regime. Some of this uh, again is mandated. Some of this is this kind of preemptive capitulation of people just going way overboard. Um, I remember many many years ago, uh, there was this new show on TV called The Office adapted from uh, a British show, which I, of course, had never seen. Um, But one of the first episodes was this diversity training episode. Um, And it was hilarious. I remember everybody watching it saying, oh, yeah, you know, sometimes people, you know, companies, whatever, they have these, we want to be more diverse. And it's this big disaster where nobody knows how to do it. And everybody could laugh about it back then. I don't, not really sure that would go over so well today. Um, So that's a big change in the last 15 years or so years, however long ago. I'm getting old. Maybe that was 20 years ago. Um, but, you know, it's it's a big change in a short time. Um, and it's the sort of thing that, that there needs to be avenues. Partly, people need to have the courage to resist it. Like I said, in a lot of cases, this is actually just people doing it to themselves. Um, so you don't have to. And if you don't have to, I should say, then don't and see what happens. Um, just provide a good product and 
you know, let that be enough. Don't make the statement. Don't feel like you have to make the statement because what does it really matter if you're not actually helping anybody anyway? Um, so I, that's how I see it. It is this kind of weird rhetorical language game and it, it ends up translating into bullying on social media and people trying to dox people and, you know, dig up old stuff so they get fired from whatever job they have and that sort of thing. That's really toxic and harmful. Um we mentioned last week about, you know, how we don't have much of a place for forgiveness in our culture anymore. Uh, and man, digging up old statements, old actions, not to say that people shouldn't ever be held accountable. That's not my point. But just, you know, random, oh, you tweeted this in 2012 or whatever, um, and not letting it go. If somebody's like, yeah, you know, that was a bad bad tweet. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I, I, I guess I, too, was, you know, even from years ago, gesturing at this when— uh, uh, this and then this ended up interestingly enough. Uh, there was another uh, writer who had come up with uh, the same thing around the same time, and it took me and another person to put you know two halves together of a thought that we were having about like what is this kind of civic religion that is happening in the country right now, and that, the half of it that I offered was that it is without forgiveness, mm-hmm. and my friend and colleague uh, offered that, but with perpetual atonement. Yeah. Um, and that does seem to be, you know, again, gestures at something at an actual phenomenon that is happening. I, I thought it was interesting, Dylan, that you were echoing pretty well the uh, second part of the definition, very, again, long piece from Freddie DeBoer that we'll put in the show notes. You were echoing the second part of it, imma- uh, which he puts as immaterial. It is immaterial. Woke politics are overwhelmingly concerned with the linguistic, the symbolic, and the emotional to the detriment of the material, the economic, and the real. Woke politics are famously obsessive about language, developing literal language policies that are endlessly long and ex- uh, exacting. Utterances are mined for potential offense with pitiless focus, such that statements that were entirely anodyne a few years ago become unspeakable today. Being politically pure is seen as a matter of speaking correctly rather than acting morally. The woke fixation on language and symbol makes sense when you realize that the developers of the ideology are almost entirely people whose profession involves the immaterial and the symbolic. Professors, writers, reporters, artists, pundits. They retreat to the linguistic because they feel that words are their only source of power. Consider two recent events. The Academy Awards giving Oscars to many people of color and Michigan repealing its right-to-work law. The latter will have vastly greater positive consequences for actually existing American people of color than the former, and yet the former has been vastly better publicized. This is a direct consequence of the incentive structure of woke politics. One of the interesting... This morning... When I was driving into work, I'm listening to an audiobook, History of the Reformation, that is a giant, you know, it's, I'm, in my, I'm in the last 10 hours of it, and it's been a 50-hour project. And we are now in the United States. And when you talk about these speech codes, there's an interesting, when Maryland was in this precarious situation, uh, there was a brief time in which Maryland had sort of very broad-ranging religious freedom, and it very quickly saw that as precarious. And that eventually ended in Maryland, uh, tragically. But one of the last-ditch efforts to save it involved passing speech codes 
that involved uh, punishments of flogging for using certain terms of religious abuse towards other people, calling other people heretics. The two uh, interesting that stood out to me is calling people Lutherans or Presbyterians, <laughs> like naming people for what they were, <laughs> was considered a potential term of abuse and a potential threat to the civic order. And I think that you know when people feel so, this is this is the positive side of sort of wokeness, is when people become aware that the world is in many cases, not a fair place, not a just place, that unspeakable things have been done throughout human history to humans of all, all kinds, in all places. That's deeply unsettling. And I think, you know, I remember uh, talking to, uh, you know, of a friend, uh, and this is when she was young, and she was like in the third grade, and she learned about segregation in the United States for the first time, and she came home in tears because she didn't think this sort of thing was even possible. That's a sort of sensitive conscience that should be applauded, but when you are in that sort of very raw, vulnerable place that can lead to um, a, a, a sense of urgency that is disproportionate or at least misapplied. When, you know, my, the way that I reflect on the troubled aspects of human history is that it took us a very, very long time to get there and it will take us a very, very long time to get back. But I think there can be a misplaced urgency among some, place, some folks that they recognize injustice in the world and they think that it must end now by any means necessary. And the reality of it is it can't, as tragic as that is. It took us a long time to dig all of the holes that we're in and it's going to take a long time to do it back. And when you seek to police others, when you seek to poke and prod and turn that sort of antagonism on your perceived enemies that doesn't bring us forward, that does, that entrenches these sorts of things. And I think this is sort of, you know, this is one of the reasons we have, uh, you know, a, a rising sort of reactionary sentiments as well on the right um, as this is this is this provokes those sort of sentiments and so I think you know one way to, to talk about this debate is is to talk about actual concrete things not necessarily material because language and symbols are important unlike Freddie DeBoer I am not a Marxist um, but I think talking about trying to concrete make these things concrete, and trying to talk through them one after the other in a way that we work towards constructive solutions and not merely as a, as a rhetorical bludgeon against our enemies is the only way that these issues get resolved. I think you gesture too there <clears throat> at an uh, underlying reality of that ideology and worldview, which I think is the belief in the perfectibility of this plane of existence. Um, the, the, the way that one comes about approaching that we see wrongs and injustices and we need to right them right now by any means possible, I think flows from a belief that we can make things perfect here, that at some point we will achieve nirvana, 
at some point everything will be right. Uh, there'll be harmony in the universe and we will all, uh, you know, link arms and sing Kumbaya, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just not going to happen. It, it is just, this is not a realm of existence in which perfection will ever be achieved. And that all costs kind of view of either politics or social engagement is unhelpful uh, because underlying it is this idea that if anybody anywhere is doing something that is seen as bad, uh, somebody has to act, somebody has to do something about that. Um, and it's just not a helpful way to look at the world because you know it is, it's never going to get there. Um, that's not to say that we shouldn't have high standards. And again, this comes back to one of the problems with I think it, uh, it, it is with wokeness now and was with political correctness prior to that, which is some of the things people are advocating for, to me, just seem like good manners. Like if people don't want to be called by a certain term, so this is an example of uh, black people not wanting to be called Negro anymore. Um, if that's a desire, abide by it. I think it's a very reasonable thing to do. There, of course, are plenty of other things in there that people are uh, attempting to be bludgeoned into agreeing with even if they don't. But the line is blurred between things that are just good manners that do evolve with time. And uh, again, to come back to the the headline of the second Freddie DeBoer piece, the sweeping social and cultural changes that some people desire to see in the world. And I think the more that people begin to understand and embrace an, an idea of politics or social movements like this as fundamentally ameliorist, that the goal is to make things slightly less worse over time and to not get yourself so bogged down in the fact that somebody somewhere might be doing something that you find morally objectionable. I don't find that to be very attractive on the left or on the right when it manifests itself. To a great extent, even if people are living in what you consider to be very terrible ways, as long as you're not being harm, actively harmed by it, let them live in their own terrible ways. You could advocate for them to live in better ways. I have no problem with that whatsoever. But the attempt to bludgeon people into that kind of an agreement and to beat them down into acquiescing to the notion of one way to live that is virtuous is, uh, is not helpful. Adam Smith's first major work was the theory of moral sentiments. And uh, I remember the first time uh, I read any of it uh, and opened it up to the beginning, it was really puzzling. But he begins with a discussion of propriety. He spent a lot of attention on what makes for civil behavior, what makes for being nice, basically, is how we would say it today. Um, and I think he has a very real insight that you don't get virtue and morality if you have a breakdown of proprietiveness it that that it begins at that basic level of civility uh, and when that has when that deteriorates uh, then you end up with all sorts of distortions at, you know in the ways in which we've been saying um, so it's a good reminder uh, that he wrote more than one book uh, for any of our friends who love his wealth of nations definitely take the time to at least read the first few chapters of his theory of moral sentiments as well Let's move on to our final topic. Uh, last week on this program, we discussed the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and the repercussions uh, coming from that. And something that I've noticed over the uh, time in between when we had that conversation and now uh, is a phenomenon that is very similar to something else that we've discussed on this program before, which is 
in response to horrible, tragic, and just uh, awful mass shootings in the United States, there are people who have a certain set of policy goals, and they always offer them up in the wake of those kinds of incidents. And often those goals are disconnected from the actual incident that just occurred. It is an opportunity for people who have a political belief system and an agenda to uh, flog the agenda, uh, even if it doesn't actually have any relevance to what just transpired. I see the same thing going on here. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is a perfect example of this, of somebody saying that, like, this is a regulatory failure. Um, you know, the, the Silicon Valley Bank should never been allowed to do the kinds of risky things that it was doing. And this is where you really need to back up for a moment and look at what the problem was at Silicon Valley Bank. Um, part of it was uh, a bank run, uh, was precipitated by a bank run. But one of the reasons that uh, the portfolio of Silicon Valley Bank was in trouble is because they were holding a lot of uh, long-term treasury bonds. And that is a perfectly reasonable investment. The problem can come in when interest rates start rising and start rising quickly, which is what the Federal Reserve has been doing in response to the inflationary spiral that the country was in. So what is a perfectly reasonable, and again, if we're talking about exceptionally risky kinds of investments, I'm in a way very open to that argument about what happened in 2008, right? I always enjoyed uh, the, uh, the big short. Yeah. And the way that Adam McKay in there uh, endeavored to explain these very complex financial instruments through these weird little vignettes of like Margot Robbie in a bubble bath explaining credit default swaps or something like that, or what these mortgage-backed securities were. Um, all that stuff was, again, comes off as very, very complicated. Uh, whether or not it should be legal or illegal is absolutely above my pay grade. But the idea of holding treasury bonds being inherently too risky is a bizarre argument because it took a certain set of circumstances – the inflationary spiral and the response of the Federal Reserve to put Silicon Valley Bank in the position that it was in where they just did not have uh, – they had to sell off that portfolio to in order to fill uh, the requests from people who were asking for their deposits from the bank. Uh, so it is – it is to me a very strange argument that says what we need is more financial regulation in order to uh, make sure these quote unquote very risky things don't happen again. I think one of the reasons, and this is total, uh, just a total anecdote, but I just find it to be too poetic to not bring up. Um, do either of you remember the name? of the financial legislation, the regulatory legislation that was passed in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Yeah, Dodd-Frank. Correct. The other bank that failed, that uh, has gotten a lot less conversation than Silicon Valley Bank, uh, was a Massachusetts-based bank called Signature Bank. On the board of Signature Bank, one Barney Frank. 
that's just a little too poetic not to point out, not that the, you know, he's a cause or anything like that. But if the man who helped write the legislation to address the 2008 financial crisis served on the board of this bank and clearly did not see any of these problems coming, I think we should dial back the calls for these sweeping regulatory changes, uh, at, at least for the time being. Well, you have to remember, so a banker wrote the banking regulation. Who's going to write the next banking regulation? Elizabeth Warren? She doesn't know how banks work, right? No, most Congress people don't. Most senators don't. They call in people from the industry to help them write the regulation. What do they do? They write regulation that works for their companies, uh, but maybe not so much for entrepreneurial startups uh, or other alternatives. Um, if treasury bonds are now risky investments, what we need is more variety. We need more ability to diversify ways in which people can invest. Um, now, not recklessly or anything like that, but still, there needs to be more options or rather than less. Or recklessly if they're willing to sure, accept if they want the to take risk. the risk. Yeah. But um, the other side is uh, do, Elizabeth Warren is credited uh, in large part with the creation of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Um, and who was actually bailed out, as we talked about last week? It was not the bank. The bank is going bankrupt. It was not the board. They got liquidated. It was not the stockholders. The value of their stock tanked, and if they didn't sell it, they didn't get anything for it. Um, it was the consumers, the people who had put money into the bank, uh, with the assumption that they would get it back with interest. Those are the people being bailed out, the consumers. So it's weird to me, uh, other than the fact that she just is a bit of, a bit of an aspiring demagogue, uh, that she would drum up so much concern over exactly what she seemingly wants, is consumers being protected from, you know, uh, uh, you know risky or... Uh, perhaps even shady behavior by by companies when they don't have all the information they might need. Now you could there's all co- sorts of ways you could say well those consumers did have the information whatever but it's not as if these are all you know gigantic companies. Some of them are yeah they're tech firms but they're like startups. You know, again they're like things that we need for a dynamic economy that we're trusting in Silicon Valley Bank. Um, so that's that's one point. Uh, the the other side uh, that I wanted to address is. is eluding me at the moment. Uh, I had another point. You're having well, your own uh, Bethany yeah, Mandel I, I moment am. right here. Yeah, yeah, it's happened to me. Well, you know what? I'll, I'll get back to it. But, uh, you know... Define wokeness. Define wokeness. Uh, a rhetorical game. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the... I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Pointing out, you know, these assets are held in treasury bonds. There's also... A question of regulation is not simple. A, financial industry is a highly regulated industry. And there are first and second order effects to not only any additional regulation, but any loosening of regulation that you have to think through very carefully. Because one of the things, if... I mean, if the end result of an excessive regulatory regime is concentration of the industry into more of the quote-unquote too-big-to-fail banks. You know, 
a world in which, you know, you have the regulatory environment that Elizabeth Warren would want is a world in which J.P. Morgan holds more deposits. That is the end result. There are certain, you know, if if you raise capital requirements, if you raise um, regulatory compliance costs, you're going to get a more concentrated financial industry and one in which, you know, you are going to have um, enhanced uh, financial system wide risks. Now, you will have banks fail. Bank runs happen. This, you know, could things have been done better? Yes. But short of, you know, okay, diversify outside of treasuries with your holdings, you know, expand your customer base. Because, I mean, part of part of why the run was so potent is you had so many holders of very large accounts so tightly professionally and personally networked. Um, I mean, the most effective way to stop the Silicon Valley bank collapse would have been to ban group chats because this is literally how it happened is people, account holders discovered some of the precarious financial situation. They were networked with other people. They said, hey, this doesn't look good. You might want to pull your money out. And again, you know, the assumption there was that potentially all of their deposits other than the FDIC uh, insured component would be lost. Now, one thing that has been floated is that you raise those requirements as a regulatory response. However, the end result of that is exactly what happened (laughs) at SVP Bank, at, uh, at SVB Bank, that everybody seems to be so upset about. So, it's it's I'm at a loss for exactly what I think, you know, banking regulation is necessary. It's sort of a dynamic process there. Companies are always innovating, iterating on products. And the reason we have regulatory agencies is to respond to and monitor this. And there are no quick fixes because there's a dynamic. There are costs and benefits to both regulation and deregulation. And unless people are transparent about that, um, you're not going to have a productive conversation. And in, in, in this conversation, why have we not yet been discussing the role the Federal Reserve played in precipitating at least this small part of the collapse of this bank and any of the ripples that came from it. Again, their attempts to deal with the inflationary problem by raising interest rates and raising them very quickly was the impetus for the balance sheet problem that Silicon Valley Bank had, that it would have been otherwise fine holding those treasuries, but when interest rates rise that quickly, the value of that portfolio drops, and they really needed to get it off of their books, selling it at a massive loss just to get it off their books before they lost even more money on it. But again, no real conversation about uh, the role the Federal Reserve has played not only in uh, causing or helping to facilitate this problem with Silicon Valley Bank, but whether or not they've been terribly effective in dealing with the inflation problem at all. So I remembered the other thing. Uh, and this uh, I'm sympathetic to, but it's, it's, I think, important to address the c- confusion. One of the more 
uh, not you know coming from congressmen senators, although perhaps. But I, something I saw a lot on social media was how come the government is bailing out this big bank, which once again they did not. Um, they bailed out depositors, which depositors. is a different thing, right? The consumers, um, but they're not bailing out uh, people with student loan debt. That's so. There's an equivocation there in that it's just not even the same kind of thing. Yeah. Um, people don't realize that, but. There is one way in which it's not the same kind of thing, and I think it's a problem. And that is that the bank was able to go bankrupt and renegotiate its debts. You cannot discharge student loan debt and bankruptcy. If you want to improve the state of things with student loan debt, because most student loans, in fact, get repaid. Uh, most college degrees, in fact, do increase their earners income throughout their lifetime. Um, It's still a mess. I I think people should think twice before going to college, sending their kids to college. They should think about what they study, all that sort of stuff. But statistically speaking, it is still a decent investment, um, even if it's not at all as good of one as it used to be. Um, That said, there are people who end up in a bad place financially, and they just can't shake this debt. That is because they don't have the same bankruptcy uh, protection as a normal business would. Uh, and that is something that people should be upset about. And I wish they were more upset about instead of saying, why not bail us out, which would financially be, you know, an, an incredible, like, I mean, we just went through a ton of inflation. Nobody liked it. Do we want more? Cause we would get a lot more. Um, we also end up bailing out a lot of rich kids or a lot of, you know, a lot of people who are, come from more privileged backgrounds. Cause you know, who's not taking out college debt, the person who dropped out of high school. Um, Shouldn't we care about them? Um, so there, there's a lot of issues there, but there are reforms that I think uh, we all should get behind and that are pretty clearly, to me, a matter of justice. That if we don't want student loans to be usurious, uh, we need to have a way for someone who's down on their luck not to be stuck with that debt forever and to forever have it on their shoulders. So I, I, I think there is... There's a real, genuine impetus for some of the outcry on the more public side, uh, you know, in terms of the average person. Um, it's a little misguided, but there is at least a point of connection where the bank got to go bankrupt. That wasn't a bailout, um, but it is something that you can go bankrupt, but you're not getting rid of that student loan debt today. Um, and that's not the way it ought to be. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look right now in the show notes where you'll find a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Dylan. For the Acted Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.